our time this afternoon. Father in heaven, we praise you for your greatness and glory and holiness, and we thank you that you've been gracious and good to us this Lord's day, that we've seen and heard of your severity and your kindness to us by the atonement of our Lord Jesus for our sins. We pray that this hour we would uh, be focused and in uh, accord with your will as we hear your word read and preached. And we pray that you would fill us with your spirit and equip us to uh, not only hear but obey what we hear. Isaiah 5. Yahweh is salvation, is what Isaiah's name means. And the context of this chapter begins back in chapter 2. And so we need to remind ourselves that this prophecy of Isaiah is for Judah and Jerusalem. It wasn't the uh, 12 tribes uh, all together. And in this chapter, there is a parable about the Lord's vineyard. And he explains the characters in the parable in verse 7 that Israel is the vineyard, but Judah is the choice vine, and God is the vine dresser, of course. I took a little sidetrack and looked at David Guzik's commentary, and he's a very well-read person. He quotes a lot of other men, and he has this quote from G.W. Grogan, whom I uh, honestly haven't heard of, but he reminds us of the beauty of the poetry that we are reading here. And, you know, as uh, barbarians <laughs> to the Hebrews, uh, we don't pick this up. He says, For exquisite beauty of language and consummate skill in effective communication, this parable is virtually peerless. One difficulty of a literary masterpiece is that a would-be translator who is not the literary equal of the author faces an impossible task. It is, in fact, an outstanding example of the way the inspiring spirit employed human language to convey the, demi the divine message. Again, that was G.W. Grogan. And I appreciate the ESV helping us see the poetry here in this chapter. And just briefly, one instance of it is in verse 7. There are two phrases that have sound-alike words. And the word justice that God is looking for, but he finds bloodshed. Those two words in the Hebrew sound very similar. And, it, and again, uh, in that same verse parallel to that, he looks for righteousness. But behold, an outcry. So righteousness and outcry are uh, similar sounding words in the Hebrew. And the uh, element of uh, in the parable of, the, of a vineyard is a theme that the Lord Jesus used on a couple of occasions uh, in his ministry. And we have in Mark 12, Matthew 21, Luke 20, we won't turn there, but we again have a parable of a vineyard, and there's the mention of a vineyard, uh, the fencing around it, the tower, and the wine press. So these are all elements that are echoed uh, in the Lord's ministry that we are reading about here. But especially uh, remember John 15:1, where Jesus said, in all the translations, he says, I am the true vine. All the English translations that I looked at, half a dozen. 
I am the true vine. And so solidarity between Judah and Christ or Israel and Christ. So with all these judgments coming upon Israel, remember that this is what came upon Christ at the cross. In all their afflictions, he was afflicted. He suffered everything uh, with them and ultimately uh, in their place uh, for them, the payment that they could not pay uh, their very life. So with those thoughts, uh, let's read Isaiah 5 uh, from the ESV. Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And now he begins, six woes will be pronounced. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room. And you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Yahweh of hosts has sworn in my hearing. That should perk our ears up when Yahweh swears. Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of Yahweh or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol, the grave, has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But Yahweh of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come, that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore... As the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. 
For they have rejected the law of Yahweh of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. We will come across that phrase a few more times in this book. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Prophecy here of the Babylonian captivity. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent, their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Interesting that Judah, in prophecy, was like a lion's whelp uh, when Israel blessed them. But here, uh, they are the victims of the lions of a foreign nation. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions, they roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness, distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. Now let's take our Trinity hymn books and turn to number 21. Familiar hymn, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. Number 21 in the Trinity. Let's stand together as we sing.
again this afternoon to Second Samuel chapter 16. <coughs> we began uh, this brief series just a few weeks ago as we considered together the three enemies that David faces as he has fled from Jerusalem uh, because Absalom, his son, has, seek, has, has sought to take over. First we met Ziba, and according to Del Ralph Davis, he has these guys pictured this way in his commentary, Ziba was a manipulator. We might call him a self-promoting manipulator. And then a couple weeks ago, we considered Shimei, who was a cursor. He was a spineless cursor. And now the third one that we will meet is a man by the name of Ahipothel. And he was a betrayer, a foolish betrayer. Now as we come and we begin reading about him, chapter 16 and verse 15, and as we come to this passage, we note that there is a change of scenery. Up to this point, we've been traveling with David. But starting in verse 15, we go back to Jerusalem. And notice what is taking place there as David is on the run. We are told that Absalom has come to Jerusalem, and along with him was this man by the name of Ahithophel. Ahithophel was once David's most trusted counselor and advisor. But now he's joined himself to Absalom. And he's been called by some the Judas Iscariot of the Old Testament. Before we look at the betrayal of Absalom, there's just one piece of information that we're given. And that is that there's another man by the name of Hushai who is also in Jerusalem. We, we learn about this man, Hushai, back in chapter 15, verses 31 to 34. And in those verses, we are told that David has sent Hushai back to Jerusalem. And so Hushai is in Jerusalem at the orders of the real king, King David. Ahithiel decides to be in Jerusalem as a betrayer who wants to follow Absalom. Hushai is given some orders to keep his eyes on things. He has chosen to use his words carefully so not to allow Absalom to know that he's left David, but he's still loyal to David. So we have these two characters. Ahithophel, who's going to be a betrayer, standing with Absalom. Hushai is with David, but in Jerusalem, giving the appearance that he's with Absalom. So that's sort of the background as to the narrative that we're going to consider this afternoon. So follow as I begin reading in chapter 16, starting there in verse 15. And then Absalom and all the people and the men of Israel entered Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. Now it came about when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And then Hushai said to Absalom, No, for the Lord, for whom the Lord, this people, and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, with him I will remain. Besides, whom shall I serve? Should I not serve the presence of his, of his son, as I have served your father's presence? So I will be in your presence. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, 
give me your advice. What should I do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he left to keep the house. Then all of Israel will hear that you've made yourself odious to your father. The hand of all who are with you will also be strengthened. And so they pitched tents. Uh, they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went in to his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. The advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one acquired of the word of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel regarded both by David and by by David and by Absalom. So here we begin by getting the counsel of Ahithophel. Absalom seeks his counsel first. He was a man who was known to be a great counselor, a great advisor. We note that, notice in verse 23, when, when you heard Ahithophel speak, it was as though you were listening to the word of God. I mean, he came with that, that much authority and that much respect and esteem whenever he gave advice. And his advice to Absalom comes really in two parts. We read the first one already. His advice was, let's humiliate David. Let's do it publicly. When David left Jerusalem, he left ten combines to take care of his house. And Ahithophel's counsel was that he would pitch a tent at top of the palace in the sight of all Jerusalem and have relations with these concubines. In doing this, Absalom becomes odious to David. Therefore, reconciliation would, would seem almost inconceivable. This would strengthen and resolve those who, who supported Absalom. They, they would be convinced that David's not going to come back. And if he does come back, he, he's never going to be reconciled to Absalom. Let's humiliate him so that we are strengthened and David is humiliated. They believe that by showing such disdain towards David, that there would be no way reconciliation would take place. And really, really, having this happen was a fulfillment of part of Nathan's prophecy to David. For Nathan had told David, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before the eyes and give them to your companions. And he will lay with your wives in broad daylight. That's what Nathan told David when Nathan confronted David with his sins. This is what's going to happen. So what Ahithophel does and advises Absalom to do is a fulfillment of prophecy. So his first word of counsel was, let's humiliate David. His, his second word of counsel was this. Let's kill David. And I'll do it personally. I'll do it personally. Starting there at verse 1 of chapter 17. Furthermore, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Please let me choose 12,000 men that I might arise and pursue David tonight. And I will come upon him while he is weary and exhausted and terrify him so that all the people who are with him will flee. Then I will strike down the king alone. And I will bring back all the people to you and return everyone and, and return and, and the return of everyone depends on the man who seeks. Then all the people will be at peace. So the plan of Absalom 
and all the elders of Israel. So the plan pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Let's kill this guy. I'll take, I'll take the 12,000 men. We'll get up there. They will scatter. I will personally kill him. That's the second part of his plan. And the plan pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. And Ahithophel no doubt thought he's come up with some great ideas. So there we have Ahithophel's counsel. But the second, second thing we notice here in the passage is Ahithophel's counsel thwarted. It's thwarted. I really can't explain it. I don't really understand it. But for some reason, Absalom thought he would get a second opinion. Now, that's amazing to me. Here, here's the, one of the wisest counsels you can have, gives him this counsel. And it pleased him. It made sense to him. And instead of saying, let's do it, he decides to bring Hushai in for a second opinion. Imagine that. And he makes this inquiry, starting there at verse 5. Then Absalom said, Now call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. I mean, that's, that's, that's an amazing verse to me. I, I find it funny. I, I, why? I thought you liked his plan. And maybe he said, well, you know, two heads are better than one. I'll just hear what he has to say. And so he calls him in. I mean, Absalom stood at the door of success. And then he made a decision that turns everything into ashes. He sought a second opinion. And this is the first step of Absalom's doom. He wants to hear Hushai's opinion, his comments, his thoughts, his suggestion. And now, Hushai, who, who's loyal to David, is told Ahithophel's plan. We read there in verse 6, and when Hushai had come to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Ahithophel has spoken thus, told him everything he said, shall we carry out his plan? If not, you speak. Tell us what you think. Now I want you to know that the key to everything else that happens is given to us in verse 14 of chapter 17. Notice what verse 14 says. Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Artite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For, why? The Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. Why? Again, we look at it, humanly speaking, saying, This doesn't make sense. What are you doing, Absalom? But behind the scenes, God is at work. And God has planned to stop Ahithophel's plan. And so he, he, he so maneuvers all things. So that here's, here's Absalom, a mighty king, thinking he's going to take everything, everything's going to be his, and all of a sudden, a thought pops into his head, you know, I'd like to hear from Hushai. And someone would say, wow, what a stroke of dumb luck. But it was God at work all the time. And so there's this alternative plan 
Verse 7. So Hushai said to Absalom, This time the advice of Ahithophel has given, the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. Moreover, Hushai said, You know your father and his men, that they are mighty men and they are fierce, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is an expert in warfare and will not spend the night with the people. Behold, he has now hidden himself in one of the caves or another place, and it will be him, it will be. It will be when he falls on them at first attack that whoever hears it will say there has been a slaughter among the people who followed Absalom and even the one who is valiant whose heart is like the heart of a lion will completely lose heart for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and those who are with him are valiant men but I counsel that all Israel be surely gathered to you from Dan even to Beersheba as the sand that is by the sea in abundance and that you personally go into battle. And so we shall come to him in one of the places where he can be found and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men who are with him, not even one will be left. If he withdraws into the city, then all Israel bring ropes to the city and will drag him into the valley until not even a small stone is found there. Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of, Shuriah, of, of Hushai, Hushai is the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. See, he comes up with this alternative plan. And it's interesting to see something of his strategy. Number one, do you notice how he first approaches him? He, he says there, verse 7, This time the advice of Ahithophel is not good. Sort of saying, well, normally we could trust the man and certainly normally he's a wise counselor and advisor and I, I'm with you most of the time. If Ahithophel has something to say, yeah, I will listen. But, but not this time. Not this time. He, he uses what I might call is a, is a little tack to sort of soften things up a little bit. I mean, if he would have went in there and said, are you kidding me? You should never trust that man. He would have maybe not got the same response. But he appeals to him as, yes, Ahithophel is a man we might listen to, but, but not this time. And then he appeals to him in different ways. He first appeals with him with logic. With logic. In verses 8, second part of verse 8 to the first part of verse 9, he says, you know, David is a, is a man of war. You're not simply going to go up there with 12,000 men and expect David to be standing out there waving his arms, saying, here I am, come and get me. No, he's going to be a man of war. He's not going to put himself out there. He's probably hidden in a cave by now. And then you're going to go up there and not find him there and not be able to get him. And then he appeals to a word of caution, verses 9b and t. If, 9b and 10. If Ahithophel goes up against David and David is able to draw first blood, it might spook the bravest of the soldiers. They might panic. You might consider the intimidation factor for everyone who knows that your father is a great soldier and that his men are, are hard fighters, even, even Absalom. So just be careful. You could have a major tragedy on your hands because you didn't really take time to prepare. You, you really didn't take time to, to think about what you're doing. So there's a word of caution, a, a word of logic, a word of caution. He also appeals to vanity. It's, it's interesting as you read through this, he, he appeals to vanity. Someone has said 
Ahithophel knew how to be successful against David, but Hushai knew how to be successful against Absalom. He knew how to get Absalom. And that was by building him up. It's interesting to notice, for example, in verse 8, Moreover, Hushai said, You, you know your father and his men. It's an emphatic you. I know you, man. You, you know your father. You, you know his men. I know you know. You know? You know, it's like one of those guys who he's, who, who doesn't know, but to help build him up, you, you, you tell him something he doesn't know as though he knows it so he'll listen to you. You know? You know what I'm talking about? That, that's what, that's what Hushai does here. You know, come on, I, I know you're no dumb man. You know David, and you know his army. Others may be duped, but not you. You know better. And then he, verse 11, But my counsel that, by counsel that all Israel be surely gathered to you from Dan even to Bathsheba as the sand that is by the sea in abundance and that you personally go to battle. Come on, this is your chance. Hushai makes Absalom the, the center of everything, which really falls in, line, falls in line with how Absalom lived his life. And this is about you, man. This is your chance. You're going to be the hero. And then in verses 12 and 13, he appeals to vengeance. Vengeance. Hushai purposes the total annihilation of David and his supporters. Let's go after them all. Let's take them all down. So you see, this is Hushai's plan. This is what he thought they ought to do. Knowing that his plan would take much longer than Ahithophel's plan and give David the opportunity to flee from danger. And as you read through this narrative, everything seems to flow very naturally and very freely. Doesn't, as Dan mentioned this morning, right? We don't see any miraculous miracles taking place here. It's just a conversation between Absalom and Ahithophel. And then, well, let's get a second opinion. Nothing wrong with it. Let's talk to Hushai and see what he has to say. And Hushai seems to just set this alternative plan before them. But yet we know that Yahweh is present through it all. We see his sovereignty. And though, as we shall see in a moment, his hand seems to be hidden, there's no trumpets, there's no billboards, there's no drums, there's no shouting, but God is carrying everything along against this betrayer. So that's the narrative of this man, Ahithophel. And with the time we have left, I just want to set four words of application or practical lessons that we can draw from this experience of Absalom, Ahithophel, Hushai, and David. First thing is this. We learn from this. It is a foolish thing to set yourself against God. It's a foolish thing to set yourself against God. 
Ahithophel must have known that David was God's chosen king. Ahithophel had been a counselor to David. There, there must have been some conversations about how David became king over Israel and how it was ordained of God. He was appointed by God. But now at this point, Ahithophel thought he knew better than God. So he sets aside what he knew to be the will of God, that David is king, he knew that. And he decided there is a better way. I will overrule God. My way is better than God's way. And in doing that, he sets himself up against God. And yet, how often do we do the same thing? God's will is perfectly set before us in his word. He tells us this is how we're to live. And how often have we determined that my way might be better than God's? That's a da very dangerous place to be. And such behavior will only lead to one's downfall. When God's will is clear, follow it. Don't argue with it. Don't debate about it. Don't think your way is better. But do what God says. It's a foolish thing to set yourself up against God. Number two, a man may possess gifts, abilities, privileges, and yet his heart all the time may not be right before God. A man may have all kinds of abilities and gifts, opportunities, and yet his heart all the time may not be right before God. Here was a man who was a wise counselor. People listened to him. When he spoke, people listened because he gave out wise counsel. So much so that we read there again in verse 23, the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one acquired of the word of God. Wow. And yet, he proved himself not to be right before God. It's, it's a reminder, simply because you have opportunity, privilege, ability, talents, gifts, does not mean you have a heart that's right with God. Don't rely on those things. Ahithophel is an example of that reality. Third, even the schemes of the wicked are controlled by God in order to bring about his purpose. Even the schemes of the wicked are controlled by God in order to bring about His purposes. There's no doubt about it. Ahithophel intended, he wanted to see David's reign come to an end. And God was using it to bring about His spoken word. Ahithophel's advice was meant to overthrow David's kingdom. Nevertheless, it carries out Yahweh's judgment upon David's sin. When Ahithophel was giving out the counsel to go up and be with the concubines, enter into a relationship with the concubines, Ahithophel was not thinking, this is a fulfillment of God's prophecy. And yet... God was using that man to fulfill the prophecy 
that comes to us from Nathan, back in chapter 12. Oftentimes the wicked don't understand that, that they're even under the control of God, and God is using them to bring about His purposes. So sometimes when we see the wicked seemingly prosper, or we see the wicked seemingly get away with their evil, and we get all up in arms, what's going on? The world's coming to an end. I don't know. God is still working out His purposes. And we do not have to fret. We, we, we do not need to find caves and hide ourselves the rest of our lives. God is working out His purposes, even using the wicked to bring it to pass. And finally, the hand of God is at work even when it is invisible. The hand of God is at work even when it is invisible. I mean, you look at, if you read through this narrative without knowing what we know, we're just thinking this is just things going as normal. This is just another day. It's the way things happen. Where, where is God? What's, and God is at work. Bill Hughes, I think it was a song years ago that he quoted. I think it was a song, but it, it went something like uh, that God's in the field working even when he is invisible or something like that. He's still in the field working. I mean, look at the book of Esther. You do know what's unique about the book of Esther. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. And you can look at that and say, where's God? And yet he's there working all the time. In his wisdom, in his goodness, in his power, he's bringing all things to pass. And it's sort of like what Dan spoke about in Sunday school this morning. Wow, what are the chances of that happening? God says just a normal day for me. I'm just carrying out my plan. Everything looks like it's just carrying, but God's at work behind the scenes. Psalm 121, verses 1 through 3. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. When Where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. God is not sleeping. God is not taking a vacation. He's always there. He's always working. He's always fulfilling His purposes. And that ought to bring the greatest comfort to us as believers. He's always working. And so when we see when we see what's going on in Washington and we see what's going on in Lansing and we see what... Yeah. And there's times you want to say, God, where are you? Well, we, we, for some reason we become practical atheists, don't we? God, you're not here, where are you? And, and God is at work. He's doing something. This is His world and we must trust Him. And so we learn from these three men the manipulator, the cursor, and the betrayer. Three men that stood opposed to David. But God was at work. And he can be trusted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the direction and the principles that your word gives to us, even as we consider such a narrative as this. And, and may we be reminded that though we don't always understand your ways, and though at times we might think we have a better idea, we might believe that our way is best. Help us to trust you. Help us to depend upon you. Help us to believe your promises. No good thing will you withhold from those who love you. 
So, Father, we pray that as we consider these things together, that it would only help us as we live in a world in which we face so much opposition to the things of God. Help us, and we'll give you the glory, for we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, take your Trinity hymn books in closing and turn to 109. This is my Father's world, and to my listening ears, 109. Let's stand together as we sing.